0: Welcome to the Other Half of Church Podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. With Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, we explore the brain God has given us and what we need for a healthy, transformational community of faith. Jim, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. From from my conversation with Michael, it, it sounded like you appeared on the scene of his life as a mysterious guide that had an answer to his deepest questions. But where did the journey start for you? How did you come to be an expert in both brain science and theology?
1: I think there were uh, three that are pretty classic for me. Uh, the The first was when I discovered that what helps the brain develop, in fact, about a third of the brain develops after a baby is born, and it develops in response to joy, with joy Mm. being a relational experience we're glad to be together. And when I heard that, actually, I thought to myself, I wonder if the Bible has anything to say about joy. Mm. Uh, I mean, at that point, I had grown up as a missionary's kid. I'd been in church, uh, all kinds of denominations, and uh, had a master's degree in theology, and I still had that question. I'd never really heard much about joy in Scripture. And so, I mean, I knew it was in there someplace, but was it important? Because in the brain, it's very, very important. So when I back went back to reread Scripture as a result, I began to see uh, joy showing up everywhere, like in the... Uh, dialogue uh, between jesus and his disciples in the upper room recorded in john uh, when he says um, these things i've spoken unto you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full i realized that jesus gave as the outcome of his teaching a high level of joy and that had never occurred to me as even important up until that day so that was one of the three Um, The second one of the three was that uh, identity uh, was built by what was called a mutual mind state. Uh, And Hmm. hearing that we were actually physically able of thinking together with another human being in real time and sharing sort of a mutual mind or understanding, we could kind of get what's going on behind their face so uh one way to talk about it is that there's a mind behind the face we're looking at and Mm. a lot of the times if the other person is being honest and you know showing what they're feeling we can actually track what they're thinking as we're going along like we know they just we just lost them like uh uh-oh they're not following us or they're understanding or they're agreeing or they're disagreeing or it's making them happy. All these kinds of reactions we can track in real time. That's a mutual mind state. We're understanding their mind. They're understanding us. Mm -hmm. Now suppose that God uh, wanted to have a mutual mind state with us. And Mm -hmm. I knew this was, this was part of the having the mind of Christ was part of being a Christian. That part was very clear to me. Um, But suppose he was using this real time, mutual mind state so that we could go along experiencing his presence in real time as we're living in some kind Mm. of a way that would guide us. The the verses like, you know, uh, you'll hear a voice behind you saying this is the way walk you in it, you know? And I remember I memorized all this stuff in the King King James, so you'll Mm. have to forgive me for (laughs) that. But yeah. Uh, all these things made sense that God does uh, guide us in some way to have a heart like his uh, through this mutual mind state. And then the, um, the final thing that was sort of a, um, big, um, enlightenment to me was when I realized that the prefrontal cortex, uh, which is the part of the brain that contains your identity, is mm-hmm. configured uh, and as though there were three faces looking at each other and interacting. Now, there's no three faces in there, but it's the neurological equivalents, the signals that it would have from faces, like three points of view mm-hmm. uh, that think of themselves as me. So uh, I, at, at the same time, am one person and three persons. Uh, wow. mentally, and I thought, well, I've seen that design before.
0: So, be- <laughs> Sounds being, familiar,
1: yeah. Yeah, being created in God's image may have had its little, you know, thumbprint right there in the middle of the identity center of the brain. I think those were three of the really exciting uh, crossover points. There's been hundreds, of course.
0: Modern culture has focused most of its effort on training the intellect to know the right things. But from what you've said, people change by developing a deeper identity through joy, which parallels what the scripture teaches. When do you think that shift happened? When did we start thinking that knowledge changed people more than identity?
1: Well... There were, I think, two major shifts. The first one was when we uh, encountered Greek-Roman uh, culture. Um, so that would be in the probably the second century um, of the church uh, history. The Greek thinking divided, divided people up into faculties. So you had a reason faculty, you had a emotion faculty, you had a memory faculty, um, and faculties just means abilities. So that they kind of observed people and said, "Well, you can think, you can reason, you can be emotional, you can what are all the things we can do?" And they made a list of those. And then at that point, Christians that are trying to talk to that culture said, "Well, now how does the heart, soul, and mind?" match with these ideas the Greeks have. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, they kind of put them together, trying to say, well, the uh, the will, that must be uh, what the um, the heart is, you know, because so, the heart is where you make choices, or, you know, they're trying to match this up. And so this faculty psychology endured from um, about the second or third century all the way up until the uh, current day. It's still starting to drop out now for the last few hundred years, everyone's known it's wrong, but mm-hmm. there hasn't been a replacement for it. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the language is still there you know, all across Christianity. And, but that's the first thing that, uh, made a difference. And then the Greeks then had to add to these faculties, the virtues So you could use these faculties for good purposes or bad purposes. You can use your intelligence to cause trouble or to cause good. So then you added virtues to it. And most of the uh, saints of the church along the way have used the language of faculties and virtues, but actually the brain doesn't operate along those terms. So when you look at the deeper functions of human beings, they don't quite work the way the language does. Uh, and then philosophy um started uh taking apart the idea of language uh and does language reflect reality or does language mm. create reality and so that's been kind of another um uh, big fight and and uh, you know the idea of what human beings are uh, still couldn't be answered you know, how do we function? So philosophers were having a great deal of fun of that. And then mm-hmm. along came the Enlightenment about uh, four, or 500 years ago that was taking off pretty big. And Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, and making mm-hmm. thinking the primary part of being human. So the intellect rapidly grew out of that as the dominant force, Uh, I think, again, it was uh, Christians trying to interact with their culture and say, Mm -hmm. well, now, if uh, thinking is what it's all about, then it's about truth. And, of course, we know all about truth. Mm -hmm. So truth and thinking became the basis of being human. Uh, That evolved over the years. That wasn't quite enough for the philosophers. So pretty soon it was... um, the uh, the will and choice, so it's not just what you think, but the kinds of choices you make, and that became voluntarism, uh, which is mm-hmm. kind of underneath most of the uh, Western Christianity, especially American Christianity. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from there, the will to power, Nietzsche and all of that, it doesn't matter whether you make choices if you don't have power to do it. So mm-hmm. uh, power wins, and from power we went on to um, – Um, a sort of um, giving up sort of a, 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 well, we can't really be all be right and we can't all be choosing what we want and we can't all have the power to do what we want to do. So we just have to be tolerant, which is kind Mm. of where we are right now. And uh, so Christianity again is being interpreted as, you know, how do we be tolerant to everything? Um, So that's, those are the, the cultural forces around us. And in the middle of that, the Christian's trying to say, well, now what really, what is a human being? And mm-hmm. at this point, uh, discovering what the brain says about how we work begins to bring some clarity to, uh, somewhere between 2000 years of philosophy and especially the last 500 years of trying to figure things out without really knowing how the machine yeah. runs.
0: Well, and it's so interesting just hearing how, through all of these hundreds of years, Christianity is kind of fitting into the mold of the the culture that's around it to explain the the story of life and redemption. And it's it's adapting as it's going through history, holding on to those core tenets of the, the gospel, but still trying to engage with the culture. And it sounds like what brain science is able to do is to take all those steps back from what we have reasoned about ourselves and say, here's what God actually did. Here's how he actually made the human mind to work.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's a really good description of it, Jeremy, because, um, you know, it's gotten uh, convoluted with explanations, stuck on top of explanations, trying to, uh, you know, make make sense of the whole thing. Do you, do you remember uh, the argument about whether the earth... Rotates around the sun or the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's sort of a parallel to that when it comes to human beings. Uh, in order to make things rotate the way the the astronomers were observing, uh, they had developed. You know, the, the the planets have little circles around circles around circles, and there's all these multiple circles that they're circling in. None mm-hmm. of that. It was very convoluted and you know, it sort of worked, but in actual fact, um, the earth was rotating around the sun and so were the other planets and they weren't going in perfect circles. So, hmm. uh, you know, real life doesn't match the idealized theory that the Greeks came up with, you know, uh, of course, um, it took us a long time to discover that.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, taking that idea of how our faith has been adapted to culture and kind of how that's shifted and shaped some of the emphases that we have as Christians, what do you think the cost has been to the church today? Just from, from talking with Michael, it's like, we, we both have been in ministry in pastoral ministry where our job, as we saw it was to help people become more like Christ. And it, at times it just felt like we were banging our head against a wall, trying to help people change, but feeling like like we had a screw and a hammer and we just, that was all we had to work with.
1: Well, there's two parts to that question, uh, Jeremy. The, the first is the intersection of Christian life with culture. And it's, it's like every time we build a bridge into culture, we have to use words that make sense to our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that way we can help the gospel flow into the culture and in ways that make sense to them. Like, yeah, well, you're talking about this, Uh, you know, Paul did that on Mars Hill very famously, you know, and Mm -hmm. of course they thought he was a babbling idiot for trying, but um, the, the problem is that there's always a backflow on these things. So when we've Mm -hmm. tried to explain the gospel in cultural terms, Usually the next generation or two uh, sort of institutionalizes that and say, this is the Mm. true gospel. This is the one that reached culture. This is the one that changed my life. And so now the really only only true and good working explanation of the gospel is this, you know, version of it right now. Uh, I think of the uh, Anabaptist beards, for instance, you know, the ones without any mustache, just the beard on the lower chin. Mm Mm-hmm. You've probably seen those in uh, some of the Amish and other people like that.
0: Yeah, I've seen them. I don't know. I didn't know there was a story behind that. Yeah. Well, uh, part of
1: the uh, conflict in in Europe was the uh, different groups of Christians fighting each other over religion. So the Catholics and the Protestants and different kinds of Protestants are all going to war against each other. And we got these centuries of war. And the Anabaptists said, we don't want to... um, go out to war and kill other Christians. Now, part Mm -hmm. of the German uniform was a mustache. Hmm. It was mandatory. You had a mustache. So if you wanted to say, I don't want to go to war against Christians, you shaved off your mustache. You say, I will not wear the uniform. Hmm. So way back in history, it had meaning, but, you know, centuries later, uh, it doesn't convey anything, you know, to the culture. Um, but it's now the way that Christians look, if you know, within that tradition, and that's just mm-hmm. one one kind of example of how these things get institutionalized. The uh, Enlightenment shifted the the mechanism for change over to mm-hmm. understanding the truth and making better choices,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then. Somewhere in the last um, century or so, we kind of added a- and Holy Spirit power to make that work. So, right.
0: I've I've heard several times right thinking leads to right action.
1: Yes, uh, and it sounds beautiful, and half of the brain works that way, but it's not mm-hmm. the half that's in charge. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. The brain has a uh, a master system, a uh, control uh, system that includes your identity, and that's the one that gives you your first reactions and your inclinations and your feelings. So, uh, if someone offends you and you get mad and you want to say a a dirty word, all mm-hmm. of that comes out of the master system, huh. and then the the uh, emissary or the the you know the one that's assigned to kind of go out and take care of business, the the, the servant system, uh, then tries to figure out how to do that in accordance to the world, uh, the rules that it's been given. Hmm. Um, and we say, well, you know, as a Christian, I really shouldn't say that word. And so we end up with what uh, Dallas Willard calls sin management. But every yeah. time we put truth and better choices, we're dealing now with conscious thought, which is in that a uh, servant system. It's the slower system in the brain. So the yeah. servant is always trying to figure out how to solve this problem when what I really feel like doing is something else.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that, that's sort of the standard Christian problem. I think, you know, people even read Paul that way. You know, what I want to do, you know, is uh, I do the opposite. And, you know, that passage from Romans uh, which I don't actually think talks about this, but it's the struggle yeah. that we currently have. So we try to say, okay, well, let's give you more truth and you can make better choices. And uh, the problem is our basic reaction isn't in the system that uses truth and choices. If it was a tree, that the willful choices would be like the leaves on the tree. They move the easiest, they change the easiest, there, but they also flip back the easiest Um, Mm -hmm. the other side of the, the part that supports the tree, the roots is actually in the attachment system that runs faster than conscious thought. And it's affected by who we love. And so changing Mm -hmm. our loves and our attachments, that's also the mutual mind system where we can think along with God, um, and thinking along with God's nonverbal on that side. So it's not words that we're thinking along, it's understanding God's heart. So if we're going to mm-hmm. change uh, the, our basic identity, we've got to start looking on the attachment side instead of on the truth and better choices side. Now, mm-hmm. I, I need to say right now, because everyone is saying, well, uh, aren't truth and better choices important? And the answer is those are what we use to correct problems, but not what we use to grow identity. So right. if all we put all our solutions in the correct problems, we're constantly picking up and trying to correct a problem that our identity is causing us. But mm-hmm. Christian character has to somehow get into the identity side, and so uh, you know we need both sides of the brain. We want to be a full-brained Christian, but um, you know our solutions have to start moving over to something that's uh, works faster than conscious speed, based on who we love.
0: Right. And um, I feel like I'm having a similar moment that Michael must have had when he first had a conversation with you where things are starting to click into place because I like, I'm just thinking back to conversations that I had as a youth pastor where it was trying to figure out why do we sin? Why do we have these bad actions? Because when you read through scripture, it's, Jesus is so much more focused on the heart behind the action, sometimes in the action itself. Mm-hmm. It's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's, you said, don't commit adultery, but I say, it, lust is the problem. Mm-hmm. Hate of your brother is the problem. And those are things that previously I would have just kind of looked at and said, you can't even control that. It just happens. And so That's it's interesting much, to... Yeah.
1: The last 500 years. Uh
0: Yeah, to hear just that there is another system in the brain that is processing those things. And that is the kind of the center of control that we need to look at and understand as followers of Christ and especially those who are leaders of others who are wanting to follow Christ. How do we train and shape the whole person, left brain, right brain, to to become more like Jesus.
1: Yeah, or in this case, to actually have a, a loving attachment with him. And mm. as soon as you say, how do you create a better attachment? Um, I think it's almost uh, every Western Christian Christian I can think of kind of stops there and looks blankly at you, like what are you even talking about? And, and
0: uh-huh.
1: you know, I have no idea what, you know, techniques or steps would be involved in doing that sort of thing and um, and yet we all have made the observation that who we're attached to uh, it has a huge impact on where we're going to go Uh, probably even as a youth pastor you saw somebody fall in love with the wrong person and you Mm -hmm. realize that attachment's not going to take you in a good direction you're going to be stuck with a you know a lot of pain. You're going to be drifting away from the things of God, and and you saw someone forming a good attachment with the with people who were working on, uh, you know, the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. Doesn't your heart just smile and go like, that's going to be a powerful influence for the better right there. Mm-hmm. So, so we all observe it. We just don't know how
0: to uh, how it works until now. And I'm really excited to get to learn more. I think in our next episode, I would love to hear more about that left brain, right brain um, design that we have and how, how that affects our spiritual formation. It'll be good. You've been listening to the Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. To learn more about the book by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, visit theotherhalfofchurch.com.